Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey, y'all, this is Alex, your host of Liberation Bible Study. For today's episode, I am thrilled to have with me Reverend Derek McQueen, PhD, who is serving as pastor at St. James Presbyterian Church in Harlem, New York. Today, we will be reading Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, through the theme of mystery. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you, Alex. Derek, it is our practice on the show to introduce ourselves, our pronouns, our work, and our identities, because we know those always show up whenever we are engaging with these texts. Derek, will you share with us a little more of who you are? Sure. My pronouns are he and him, and I am also, my PhD is in homiletics and New Testament, so I bring to this my study of the New Testament text, not just in terms of liberation, but in a revealed um, understanding of how these texts um, can be claimed to shape our own identity, especially the mystery of who we are and how we intersect. Um, I also um, am teaching New Testament to undergrads at Fordham University, a Jesuit school, so it's been very interesting to tackle these texts and think about empire criticism as well. So that's another piece that I bring to this. But mostly I bring to this today um, as a same gender loving man, um, the, the people who are lifted up in this text in such a, a wonderful way, um, who we don't usually hear about through the rest of the text, but understanding that the people who we don't hear from are very often the most important people in the text. And that's the heritage that I come from as an African-American with my Aunt Dot being a mother of the church, with my mother being a pillar of the church, um, and being, you know, a same gender loving out pastor in Harlem, New York City at a, a historic African American church, being able to be that voice and to, and to not really lift myself up, but to lift up the fact that this church is a history of abolitionism and what does abolitionism and liberation mean today, other than seeing ourselves fully and wholly in the text. Thank you. You're welcome. And I am Alex McNeil. My pronouns are he and him. And as you know, I serve as executive director at More Light Presbyterians and I'm a white transgender man. And often the work that I do at More Light is to sit in mystery with people who are perhaps discovering for the first time their own empty tombs mm. of the way in which they were taught about Jesus and the Bible, and to realize that suddenly something that they felt had been a dead weight in their ability to see others as fully human has been transformed and uplifted, and suddenly they are able to be in community with LGBTQ folks, with other marginalized people. So I'm really grateful that we're going to read this text through the theme of mystery, because in my own life, I have sat with the mystery of who I am and who I am becoming in a transition that I did not know where it would lead me around my own gender and sense of self. And I'm grateful to be in a place now where I feel that I am often in a dazzling white garment. Mm. That's wonderful. So Derek, I'd love for us to read through Mark 16 verses one through eight 
for our first time today, and as we do to be listening for the context and what is going on in the passage, as well as what sparks our curiosity, especially in what mysteries we hear in this text. Derek, would you be willing to read the first section for us? No problem. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, They saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look. There's the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As you read through this text and heard this text, what do you know about the context and what stuck out to you in this go through? I'm always amazed that these three women are bringing spices. And that despite the fact that Peter and the disciples are afraid of being connected with Jesus, that these women are walking around Jerusalem at pre-dawn in the dark with 40 pounds of spices. It takes 40 pounds of spices to um, prepare the body for, for burial. And that they, they prepared these spices, but weren't able to do it because Jesus died before the sundown of Sabbath. So they had these spices and these three women carried 40 pounds of spices through the dark streets of Jerusalem that were being um, monitored by Roman guards. And they had the courage to make it there and to do that without even thinking who was going to roll away the stone. They had a purpose. They don't come to the place with fear. They leave with fear, but they don't come with fear. That's one of the things contextually that that always amazes me about this text. For this particular time, one of the things that I'm wondering is, is that the, the person who was sitting in the tomb, the young man in white, he was sitting on the right side, the right side. So it, it gives me wonder as to what kind of an orientation they're trying to give us when we think about what does it mean to be on the right side? What does it be on, to mean to be on the right side of this resurrection moment? Um, and finally, of course, my favorite thing about this text is that they told no one. They told no one. 
which is a very powerful, powerful notion to think that, well, how did the story get spread if they told no one? And what does that mean for the Mark and writer and for the people that, that this writer is trying to speak to? What does he want them to do? And I think the other thing that's the last thing that really struck me about the text this time is the, the person sitting in the tomb, the young man sitting in the tomb, that he uses the word you. And he uses the word you um, very much in the, the plural you, you all, you all will see him in Galilee. You all, you, you, you. So the, the women are included. Go tell Peter, the disciples, and you all go see him in, in Galilee, meet him in Galilee. So it's not just this, this text that is saying that, well, you hand off this story to the men and let them go running to see Jesus. This is for the whole followers, all of those people that were following Jesus who were in Jerusalem at that moment. All of you go to Galilee where you will see him, you included, you women included. That's what I really what was really powerful for me this time was, was the you. Yes, the you all. The young man tells the women to go tell others, which is such a contrast from what Jesus has told his <laughs> disciples all throughout the Gospel of Mark, which is don't tell anybody. Be quiet. I don't want anyone to know about me. And suddenly here's this moment of now the word can break forth. It's time. And yet at the end of the of verse eight, they say they don't tell anybody and it ends there. And what you and I know, having studied this text for years, is that there are other endings that have been tacked on right. to this gospel that were added later and aren't as authentic as the original author. And to me, in reading this text through the theme of mystery, it shows me that the discomfort of mystery, that they wanted a resolution. And what I understand and other scholars understand Mark to be doing by ending it right there in that hard stop they left and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid is that it was almost up to us, the you all, to make conclusions of what does this message actually mean. And there's also the very Jewish notion of of mimicking how the Torah is read in Jewish worship. You know, every year, the first five books of the Bible in the Torah are read. And then at the very last of Deuteronomy, there's a huge celebration and the Torah is opened up and carried around and danced around the congregation on, you know, during Shabbat. And the other notion is that when you get to this spot and no one knows because no one says anything, there's also the, the notion, I remember studying about this, that perhaps the Mark and writer was trying to get us to go back to the very beginning so that we relive the mystery of the text with now with this new knowledge and to see what those lessons that we so hurriedly looked through before, how much more deeply we can get into those lessons. What does it mean to think about the demoniac now, knowing that there will be a resurrection? What does it mean to go back and think about the very beginning. What does it mean for John the Baptist to play the role that John the Baptist plays now that we've gone, we've gone to the end and we're going back and reading this good book all again? And I, and I also love, and I have to always bring up the fact that I do think that Mark has a great sense of humor, the writer of Mark, 
I mean, it's, it's pretty funny to think that, you know, all throughout, Jesus is telling people not to say anything, and they always go off and say, telling everybody he's the Messiah, and then the one time that they're able to say something, they don't. It's like the ultimate joke. <laughs> and Mark sort of plays with that. And I think that we're allowed to allow um, humor and, you know, the, to, to jump into this mystery as well. Humor and irony, because it makes it a little bit more real. And it makes the mystery a little bit more down to earth. Because when we're in situations of mystery, we always try to make jokes about it to make ourselves a little bit more comfortable. Yes. I think that it's, it's okay to, I think not more than okay, I think it's expected of us to sort of look at this text in a lot of the same ways. Mm. It makes it a little bit more ours. Yes. Yeah, the you all comes back. It's not just for those who the young man was speaking to and of the disciples, but we are part of the you all. Right, well. right. In referring back to the beginning, you have to look at Jesus's beginning ministry in Galilee. That's where right. Jesus started. It said, you will meet Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in Galilee, which is the same place. And in a mysterious way, if Mark is also calling us to reread these stories all through again, mm-hmm. knowing that the resurrection happens, do we meet the resurrected Christ at the same time we are watching Christ or Jesus go through his ministry and heal people. And the idea that there's only one resurrection in the gospel. Well, actually we see tons of moments when Jesus brings people back to life. There's so many examples of resurrection. Hmm. Oh, that's so wonderful. That is so wonderful. And to, to know that a lot of this comes on the heels of, of Passover. Um, this is also on my mind because I'm building a relationship with a Jewish congregation, with our African-American Presbyterian congregation. And after I preach seven last words tomorrow on Good Friday, in the evening, I'm going to Passover Seder. And we are weaving in together the themes of Easter and Passover. We're finding, as we, as we have been talking about it throughout the week, Rabbi Amakai and I, that it's, it's a lot deeper. It goes a lot deeper. Mm. Um, to think that these two traditions of, what, of how we're celebrating, that they may actually be connected in some way when we use this as a departure point for our two religious um, ways of thinking. How have you seen them connected? I've had a powerful connection with the notion of the Last Supper, actually and the blood of the paschal lamb and the blood that was put on the lentils of the doorposts so that for Jesus to say, this is my blood, <laughs> you know, this is the blood that, it, that I'm shedding for you, not really for remission of sins as much, but for liberation. I'm doing this to keep you, to keep the hand of death from you so that you can be free. Mm. Come on now. Yeah, that's a resurrection right there for us to be freed that way. Oh, my God, that's so powerful to to be freed enough so that we can be free from this grip of whatever it is that's holding us back, whatever Pharaoh's hearts are hardened in our lives so that we can move forward into liberation and to claim that and get to the other side of the Red Sea. It's a beautiful notion. And to Mark's point at the end of verse eight, that resurrection could happen to us now. Right. If we but go back 
and start again. That and, itself is a resurrection. And let's not forget that it's not just terror. It's terror and amazement, which harkens back to much of our, our conversations when we think about the, the Psalms, when, when they say, you know, be in fear of the Lord, be in fear of the Lord. I don't know, now that I'm thinking about it in that context, if it really is fear, like I'm afraid, if it's not awe. Right. Because in the Psalms, you know, I had this one young man in Sunday school who said to me, and he was very quiet, Alex, he was really quiet. And he would say, he wouldn't say a word, but then we were studying a Psalm and it says, be in fear of the Lord. He said, that's why I don't like church. Why does everybody say we have to be afraid of God? I'm so sick and tired. That's exactly why I hate church. And so I was like, okay, how am I going to answer this? And then I thought about it. I said, said to him, I said, well, you say awesome all the time. So you say awesome all the time. And fear, and this context means being in awe of God. So we've, for centuries, have taken this, this text to think that, you know, these women were afraid, afraid. Maybe their fear was awe. Maybe we should look at it as awe and amazement. And what does that say for us in the mystery of that moment? Um, they went away in awe and amazement and told no one because they were in the midst of this awesome reality and this awesome spiritual notion of what had just taken place. Because in, in those spaces, where you've experienced a moment of pure awe and amazement. How can you tell people with words what you've experienced? Mm. Being a part of a community that is transcendent, that is divine, being, having a moment, whether it's a big moment of seeing the Grand Canyon or a little moment of holding an infant. How can you tell somebody with words what wow. that means? And you know, it says for terror and amazement had a had seized them, but the Greek says, seize for them trembling and amazement. So this whole idea of terror is being, it's translating the Greek trembling into terror and to fear. So we take the terror, we throw on the notion of fear, we play on what those words terror does to our hearts and does to our spirits and makes us afraid of. And it feeds into all of those fears that we have when we think about terror, especially nowadays in our context. But it's trembling and amazement. Yeah. And that, that mystery, I don't know, I've been in those spaces where I found myself trembling in amazement of something and not even realized it. And you do freeze up. Not because you're afraid, but because you're, you're in this moment of never before. Never before has something that you've heard is supposed to happen. It's taking place right in front of you. It's earth shattering. Yeah. And I might say it's, it's almost like being in love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd say it's very like being in love with your beloved. Well, the use of the word fear or terror, mm -hmm. especially around Jesus's resurrection and salvation, if there's so many centuries of the use of terror or fear of Christ and whether or not you're saved, whether or not you're going to heaven, that has been used as a mechanism of control, not liberation. 
And I approach this text with that knowledge in my body. I live here in North Carolina. Yeah. And I grew up with people all around me asking me if I was saved or not. And in my Presbyterian church, that was not necessarily something to be afraid of, whether I was saved or not. It was just a fact of being born and baptized and being human. But I grew up black Baptist. So, I mean, I'm an African-American. I heard that all the time. I still hear that. I still hear that in Presbyterian places. Mm. <laughs> and in churches of color that are Presbyterian, that notion still it still fits. But there's there's something else here, Alex, that is a it's there's a moment of liberation in this mystery for us. I don't know if you remember what happens with the demoniac at the very end. I don't. Will you will you remind people what, what the demoniac is? The demoniac and- is in the fifth chapter of Mark when he is seized with legion, which is about uh, 2,000 demons have seized him and he's in this graveyard and Jesus comes and Jesus basically speaks with the demons and the demons beg Jesus to say, please don't kill us, just send us away. So Jesus allows them to be sent away. They go into these pigs and then they jump off of a cliff and they die. Uh, another humorous thing, you know, that <laughs> Jesus does a Roman, a Roman legion, it's the same amount as a Roman legion, jumps off a cliff and dies. So this man is liberated from these demons. He's free from these demons. He begs Jesus. He begs Jesus, please, Jesus, let me go with you. Jesus says, no, go to your family. He says, he said, go to your family and don't tell anybody. And he, of course, he goes to the 10 cities and tells everybody. But then what happens is that the Jewish people that are around there run Jesus out of town because they are afraid. People are in awe of the apocalypse actually happening. Not the end of the world apocalypse, but the the reign of evil ending and the reign of good starting. So they are afraid. These people have seen this one man who represents Roman oppression on them be liberated, and they are afraid and tell Jesus to go away. They are afraid of their own liberation. Mm. So there's this, this notion that this terror and this amazement and this awesome trembling and this amazement has to do with the apocalyptic nature of what the resurrection really means. Like I said, to break down that notion that it's not about the end of the world. Um, There's this notion that evil is ruling everything and that there's no, we have this notion that, you know, we get to fight in the midst of evil. That wasn't the case in, in much of first century thought. There was a major dualism thought of it's evil or it's good. And when evil is evil, we, we suffer, and that's that, until God comes and turns things around, and then it's good. This is that moment. Mm. And people are afraid of liberation. Mm. So not that we take this text and say, well, then that's what we need to do as well. We can learn from this is that this is actual liberation of the apocalyptic moment where good is ushered in. And we don't have to be afraid of something new. We can be in awe of what it means to be liberated mm-hmm. and not reticent to accept it. Yeah. So I see this, that, that a part of this mystery is this whole idea that, wow, you mean liberation and good can actually be a part of my life again? 
I can hold on to that notion, to that mystery, and I can be in awe of that. And I am trembling with the fear, I mean, trembling with the awe of being free and being liberated. Yes. And that is a powerful notion, especially for me as a same gender loving African American male. I've been asked to do a lot of work with racism. And I had a conversation a few days ago. And someone said, but we have to let people sit in their pain. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But if we've been living in pain as oppressed people for a very long time, why do I have to take the language of the oppressor and say sitting in my pain is a good thing when I have come through my pain and still survived and struggled? How come I can't stand on that? I don't need to sit in my pain with you. I've been doing it all my life. I'm tired of actually sitting with the pain. <laughs> I want to call on the liberation of this moment. And I see that in, the, in that verse. Do you feel ready to move into the second reading yeah. and, and thinking through of, of resistance? I'm happy to read this through so you can sit with the text in a different way. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Derek, how does this text call us to resistance? Well, hmm. once again, these women are resisting. They're resisting just by their mere presence of being there. They're resisting by talking to the representative of God directly. It says nothing about them looking away. And once again, there's a notion that they were alarmed, but the Greek says they were amazed. And guess what the man sitting there says to them? Do not be amazed. Stop worrying about being amazed and being surprised and go do something. That's exactly what the, the person says. 
and I'm, I'm doing it specifically and not saying an angel because I want to be true to the text. Right. But that is a blessing to be a part of resistance. Do not be amazed, but go. <laughs> That's what we're being told to do when we are a part of resistance. I do that when I talk about number 45 all the time. I said, stop being amazed at how crazy things are. That's part of the tactic, because if you're amazed, then you're paralyzed. Don't be amazed. Go do something. I mean, how many times have we heard people sitting and talking about political situation and saying, I just can't believe this. I'm just so amazed that this is happening. Oh, my. What did they tweet last night? What's going on? Who's he sleeping with? It doesn't matter. What are you doing about it? I said to a, that same Jewish congregation last year, days after number 45 was uh, inaugurated, I was doing the Martin Luther, it was days before, I was doing the Martin Luther King service with them, their Shabbat service. In my sermon, I said to them, I said, let's be honest and criticize ourselves. We've been on vacation. We've been hoping that with Obama, that he'll be the great savior and that he'll do everything. And now that he's not here anymore, vacation's over. Now we got to get to work. We don't have to cry. We just have to get to work. And that is a powerful notion of resistance for me in here. It's just the, the blessing that is in the text that actually tells us that we can stop sitting around and go. And that we have to go find Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not by sitting around will Jesus come to us. Right. We are told to go and seek him. That's where he told you that you'll find him. It's like the great Jesus Easter egg hunt. Yeah. <laughs> Which takes noticing. And yeah. half of the work of resistance is seeking and doing and noticing the places where resurrection is possible. Because Jerusalem and Galilee are not close. Mm. So what are you going to find on the path to Galilee as well? Mm. How far are they? I'm not sure the, the actual distance, but the one is in the, I believe that, but look at my maps. But when you sort of see that and where that area, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty far distance. So it's not something that you would sort of do overnight. It's not like one of those seven miles to Emmaus kind of things. Yeah. It's so, going to take yeah. you some time to get to Galilee. And this is part of the journey that Jesus always made going from Galilee to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Galilee. It's a natural part of that. Yeah, because Jerusalem is in the south, and the Sea of Galilee is in the north of Judah. So it's, it's literally on the other side of Judah, the Judean area. So it's, it's a long distance, and it's very important to note that, what are you supposed to be doing? Do you really think that it's just supposed to be this entourage of people that have hung out with Jesus? I like to think that as they're going to Galilee, part of the resistance is to say, look, Jesus told us to meet him at Galilee. You down with that? Mm. <laughs> then it becomes a march. And one of the texts of the feeding of the 5,000 is actually a march. Because they're, when they're told to go get food, they, they can't go get food because the area that they're in is a Roman-occupied area where Jews were kicked out because it's a beautiful area. And 
and Roman governors were made of people who retired from the military. They pushed the Jews out so that they could be in this prime land, and they would never have sold them bread in the first place. So Jesus says, you feed them. Because Jesus has just marched 5,000 people through this place. There are marches here. And this is, I would love to imagine this as a great march of saying, Jesus said, it's going to be in Galilee. We are still in our holy period because Pentecost has not come yet. We still have 40 days. And to the point of not telling anyone. That speaks to me of showing versus telling. Mm-hmm. Show them with a march. Yeah. Look at this movement of people who are going to Galilee to find Jesus. Rather than, hey, have you heard some great news? And just telling people, oh, I promise you it's good. But to go see it, to go experience it, is way beyond just a simple word. And I think a lot of times Christians in particular can get caught up in the words that we just want to bring a word to somebody. We just want to change someone's life by telling them a word. Now, the power of words are profound. Yes. For example, telling someone they're a beloved child of God is very different than telling someone they're going to go to hell and they won't be saved of who they are. Those words definitely have power. But the way resistance happens, even in hearing the words that you're going to hell and God does not love you, resistance comes in that deep knowledge and experience of being beloved. To resist that notion and say, no, actually, I am a child of God and I will go march now. I will march in the streets because this society is telling me I'm not. Yeah, that's the work I've done with my dissertation is reclaiming this identity that we find in the text in our, for ourselves. You know, you can't kick me out of church and then tell me that everything I've, I've learned in the church doesn't apply to me anymore. Sorry. <laughs> you just can't do that. It's not yours. This word is not yours. It's you all. You may say that I can't be here, but from what I've read, I'm taking this book with me when I leave. I'm taking the resistance notion that I have as an African-American, same gender loving man, to know that civil rights happened in the church. I'm taking that knowledge and that power with me when I leave. You can't tell me that I can't avail myself to that anymore. That's not your job. And Jesus shows over and over and over again in in these texts that the church is not an inside place. Amen. Now, what if... As part of this resistance, they didn't say anything, but they said, if you really want to make up for everything that you didn't do at the cross, let's go to Galilee. He said he would meet us there without even saying that he got up. And they convinced people to go to Galilee. And there Jesus was. What, can you imagine how powerful that would be? I very often like to say that Holy Saturday is a moment where we need to imagine ourselves where there is no hope. And we need to rest in that no hope at all. Everything we've hoped for has just shown that it's, it, it doesn't matter. And we're in that place. And I'm not going to say that place of darkness. I'm just going to say that place of liminal reality where 
hope is gone so that the joy of resurrection can actually be the joy of that. For the first century, if that whole context is like, okay, so if I say nothing to anyone, but I convince you to go to Galilee, what would happen if all those people actually got to Galilee and saw Jesus there? To me, that speaks to the need. If I was one of the disciples who fled before the crucifixion out of fear and worry that I was going to get caught up in this somehow. And then to hear from these women that there's a chance to meet Jesus in Galilee, to me, that speaks to the need to confess, to apologize, to be reunited in community. And in moments of hopelessness, one of the things that I do is if I'm really feeling hopeless Mm -hmm. is to start thinking how did I cause some of that if I'm in a broken relationship what Mm -hmm. did I do to lead to that because I think in feeling hopeless there are certainly external forces that put us there yeah but how are we also responsible when we are there in that holy Saturday the day between the crucifixion and resurrection place What did we do? What didn't we stop to get here? Around the election of 45, what didn't I do? Which white relatives did I not talk to Mm -hmm. about a vision of liberation that includes you all? Hmm. And that's an important part of resistance, Alex, is to be in that space and ask that question, what didn't I do? or even to be bold enough to say, well, where was I complicit? Mm -hmm. Because it makes, it makes the shift of moving forward in resistance. It makes you resolve even stronger because it's not just the issue of the day. It becomes a part of who we are. It becomes a part of our identity that, that we're resisting because we recognize that there's something that something within us that we now identified that we want to do something about. And that's one of the most powerful things for me about resistance is that it's not just about the issue at hand. It's where's my piece in it? Where do I fit into this? Like I can support a lot of different protests that are going on, but some of that is not mine. And there are some spaces where I need to ride beside and be, be your ride or die, but there needs to be somewhere I need to be directed front and center because I'm, I'm dealing with my own conviction and what I need to make better for the world that I live in and the world that I want to leave behind. And to share that um, with a group of people who are doing it likewise creates this bond and makes the resistance even, even stronger. And I think that's what we do a lot with more light and what we do a lot with um, in the church and how we can stand with other, with other topics and other protests that are going on because we do that work. We know that we were complicit in the church for so long until we stood up. We grew up in these churches and these church systems and allowed preachers to, to do harm and to do harm to us because we felt we didn't have any power and felt that we didn't have any voice. 
And that's not a negative thing. It's just a reality. It's, it's the realness of the moment, but it fuels the protest. Like that's what the work that I do at the Center for African-American Religion, Sexual Politics and Social Justice, looking at sexual politics and social justice in historic black churches. That's one of the main parts of that work is we left, we started that work five years ago saying, how can we just get preachers to do no harm in the pulpit? And that has now shifted into a, a lot more because we realized, you know, there, we have been complicit and there's some other things we need to answer to. And we're bringing that to communities. And it's a powerful notion that doing resistance that way is wonderful. I'm so glad that you asked that question about where is resistance in this. Do not be amazed. Go do. Mm-hmm. And having the courage to get up at the early dawn. Mm. They were already doing. Well, before they, dawn. Before dawn, yeah. They yeah. realized they could sneak out. Maybe that's the moment of resurrection for them. Mm. Yeah, that's the other thing about Mark. It's not about Jesus' resurrection a lot of times. It's about what's woken up in us. What fears are conquered? If Jesus is to conquer death and resurrection, there's a fear. Death can be equated to a fear in this conversation. So where do we wake up? And could it be possibly that when they were gathering those spices at 3.30 in the morning, that Jesus was getting up? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What if the resurrection happened for so many people at the exact same time? that Jesus was getting up. <laughs> I think we are already in our third question. Uh, do you want to read the text through again, or do you feel ready to just move right in? Let's read it again. Okay. Derek, would you read for us? I want to read it, this to you with the Greek transliteration. Ooh, yes. I want you to hear how the syntax, how it makes it different for you. And having passed the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices in order that, having come, they might anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they come upon the tomb, having arisen the sun. And they were saying to themselves, who will roll away for us the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And having looked up, they see that has been rolled away the stone, for it was extremely large. And having entered into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, having been clothed in a white robe, and they were utterly amazed. But he says to them, do not be amazed. You seek Jesus, the Nazarene, the one having been crucified. He was raised. He is not here. Look, the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples of him, Peter, he goes before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And having gone out, they fled from the tomb, seized for them trembling and amazement. And no one, nothing they told for they were afraid. 
what vision for the work of liberation does this text offer? What did you hear differently this time? In thinking about our prior conversation on resistance around what if the moment as Jesus was raised, the women got up. I heard it differently this time. What if the women getting up helped raise Jesus? Ooh. Because it's not enough just for God to have removed Jesus from the tomb and brought Jesus to life in Christ. That it takes us, you all, rising up for the crucifixion and resurrection to be completed. I'm sitting here next to Harlem School of the Arts where they, one of the things they're always practicing on Saturday afternoon is that song, And I'll Rise Up. To hear these young African-American, Latinx, Asian, and white students in this choir singing this song, And I'll Rise Up, And I'll Rise Up, And I'll Do It All Again, you know, um, it's an anthem for what you just spoke to. And it also is powerful for me because I've written about the powerful notion that the only people who could attend who Jesus would allow see him in the broken and painful and pitiable state of being on the cross, the only ones who could bring him comfort were women. And what a powerful ministry that was to attend to Jesus at his death. And that Jesus could only be vulnerable there with them on that cross to see that, to let them see that and to see him in that state. And for them to go down with him and to rise with him is a beautiful notion of a cushion, if you will, of the notion of death and resurrection being completely surrounded by the feminine and being held by the feminine, and being birthed by the feminine. Wow. Because there's something around the experience of vulnerability, of being vulnerable and being broken. I think that Jesus's brokenness, we can see it most clearly in solidarity with our own brokenness, the places yeah. that we have been dead. And whatever that manifests in you, each of us has a piece of brokenness. Each of us has a piece of the feminine imagery mm -hmm. of Christ. I think what Mark is doing here is breaking down this dualism between life and death, dualism between male and female, dualism between light and dark, and good and evil. That it is all in us. Yeah. And if we can tune into it, those different pieces, that's what it helps us truly see. When I speak about liberating darkness um, from negative, being so negative, especially with African-American Christian context, I very often talk about the dance of um, light and dark at dawn and at twilight. And that it is that dance and that it's almost like a pas de deux where a pas de deux, the partner and the ballet, um, when they're doing their, doing their piece together, but when you allow the other to 
to be in the spotlight. And then you come back together and you once again allow the other. That's what night and dark does. And that this happens at that moment of the pas de deux, when they're together in this dance, in this ballet, in this beautiful moment. And that is where we are. That's what dawn is, and that's where they were traversing through that time period. So there's almost this period even in, it's like the moment of creation is this moment. And when you are in the moment of creation, there you see liberation clearly because you see possibility. That's where I see a lot of the liberation in this text, especially with Mark ending it at verse eight, is there's possibility. We can step into this possibility and that's liberation. And in this possibility, we are liberated and empowered to make it our own. There's no one formula here that Mark is saying, this is what it looks like, but it is you all have to go. I think that it's, it's, it's a little bit stronger than that. I think it's that we are required to. <laughs> I think we are required. I think that is our call. When we can speak to how we articulate liberation, we give people, other people the freedom to do the same. So we are required to do that because if we make it an option and opt out of it, then we bring no one else along and liberation stumbles. And we have to face the empty tomb in us. Yes. To be able to share with others the power of amazement that we experience. The empty tomb is the one full of amazement and the place of brokenness is that fear of what will we find when we reach this tomb? Will the stone be too heavy for us? I really zeroed in on that part this time, hearing, what are we going to do when we get there? Yes, they, were, they rose with conviction. They had their 40 pounds of spices that they were lugging with them. But is this going to be too much? Am I even capable of moving it? And how amazing is it when I face moments like that in my own life of, am I even capable of getting through this, God? It's too much. It's too heavy. It's too hopeless. And then suddenly, if I but go, if I come upon the tomb, which is what the transliteration said, and I'm willing to face it, that's when it is removed. That's what liberation to me is, is we must face what it is that is standing in our way, standing in others' way, for it to be removed. And to know that there is an obstacle, but to move forward as if. That weakens the foundation of the stone. Because the stone is just, the stone that is placed in our, in our way, in our tombs, it's sealed there to sort of seal inaction and inactivity. 
but when you move as if, the ground trembles. And I love to think of those marches where, you know, where thousands gather and thousands gather. And I think about Mother Earth and the rhythm that she experiences and the joy that she experiences knowing that um, she too is a part of the rhythm of protest and liberation. Love that rhythm. Native dances for new seasons. You are shaking Mother Earth. There is a rhythm and a connectedness with our movement is Earth's movement. Yeah. Our getting up allowed Christ to rise. What if we live that way? Wow. That's the requirement. I think that's where the requirement feels so compelling that we're not just doing it for ourselves, we're doing it for others, but it's all bound up. We start again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Wow. So much liberation in this, this notion of being attendant to the resurrection. Being faithful to the broken moments in the movement that can bring resurrection. That's really a liberating notion for me. They were faithful to the failure of the moment of the movement. And by being attendant to that, what does the transliteration say about um, having come that they might anoint him? When you are attendant and faithful to the anointment of that moment and recognizing that moment and seeing that, wow, this is really hurtful. Like the very first time that we passed LGBTQ ordination in the church and the churches failed. Like that kind of a moment, but still being attendant to that moment and living in that moment and coming together in that moment and anointing that moment only for it to give us the strength to move forward. That's powerful. That's the liberation of my ancestors. Amen. Derek, I know I want to invite you to reflect what, and my dogs are barking like crazy. What will you be taking with you as a result of this reading? I will be taking away um, that notion that I will not be alarmed, I will be amazed. And in my amazement, I will go and do. I will try and live that. And I'm also going to take away how liberating it is to have a truth that you can go away with in an awesome way and whether it gets told by me or not that someone somehow will see the truth and the light of the truth no matter what i don't have to go to peter i don't have to go to james i don't have to go to john i don't have to go to elizabeth I don't have to go to Anna. I don't have to go to anybody who wants to be, I don't have to be, I don't have to go to Pat, a neutrally gendered name. <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere that my truth 
somehow, some way, will get out. And I've lived that now that I read, now that I say that. So I'm going to take that with me. Mm. I'm taking with me something that you started us with of Mark calling us to start over. And yes. not without the wisdom we've gained along the way that we take that wisdom with us and it adds layer by layer, the truths that we know in the resurrection we experience and the liberation we feel and that those moments are never complete. They are opportunities to start again and to make the circle bigger and to bring more with us to Galilee. My call is to continue to gather those to go to Galilee. Ashe and amen to that. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian, mlp.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.